show everybody welcome back act like i was just on air i wasn't on air i was off air this is the beginning of the show and i'm just realizing now i don't have a drink next to me that needs to be remedied thankfully it's okay i'll be able to talk to you while i do it because i got the lapel microphone on here we go got myself to back bitch so we got a big show today. Um, yes, we're still talking about World War III. We have, uh, I have a zillion updates on Ukraine and Russia. You are not going to want to miss any of the updates. I got President Obama weighing in. I got Bernie Sanders weighing in. I got um, Donald Trump weighing in. I have... Um, Putin's spy chief saying the quiet part loud. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, Biden responds and, and levies a bunch of sanctions. <clears throat> but before I get to that, I might fuck around and bring back some old-timey curse words, y'all. I might bring back some old-timey curse words. I was thinking about this last night. I went through a whole list. I spent way too long looking into this. Here are the ones that caught my eye. Get stuffed. That's a great one. It's attributed to the Australians. Thanks from all my mates down under there. Appreciate that. I think that makes the cut. Uh, corn nuts might make the cut. Jack Nasty. That's a good one. Chowderhead. Chowderhead is borderline because I think Peckerhead is better. Peckerhead is a classic. My buddy used to use that in high school. Phenomenal word. Might bring that back. I don't know. Which one is your guys' favorites? I'll leave that up to you guys. Um, all right. lot of stuff to get to. Let's jump into it. Let me just pull up one tweet that I'm going to need for my first segment here. Hmm. Where's that tweet I need? Maybe it's the other direction. I think it's the other direction. Okay. All right. Let's get started. So President Biden uh, came out, speech on Russia and Ukraine, and um, he is officially retaliating 
He's going to do sanctions. We have our first set of sanctions that uh, he talks about here. So I want to take a look at the most important parts of his speech, and then I'll break down what I think he gets right, uh, what he gets wrong, what he could have done differently, how, uh, how good the policy reaction is. Let's take a look. Yesterday, Vladimir Putin recognized two regions of Ukraine as independent states. And he bizarrely asserted that these regions are no longer part of Ukraine and their sovereign territory. To put it simply, Russia just announced that it is carving out a big chunk of Ukraine. Last night, Putin authorized Russian forces to deploy into the region, these regions. Today, he asserted that these regions are actually extend deeper than the two areas he recognized, claiming large areas currently under the jurisdiction of the Ukraine government. He's setting up a rationale to take more territory by force, in my view. And if we listened to his speech last night, and many of you did, I know, he's, uh, he's setting up a rationale to go much further. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, as he indicated and asked permission to be able to do from his Duma. So let's begin to, uh, so I, I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further as with sanctions. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. So today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners and will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia escalates. We're implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and their military bank. We're implementing comprehensive sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or European markets either. Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the criminal policies and should share in the pain as well. Because of Russia's actions, we have worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not, as I promised, will not move forward. As Russia contemplates its next move, we have our next move prepared as well. Russia will pay an even steeper price if it continues its aggression, including additional sanctions. The United States will continue to provide defensive assistance to Ukraine in the meantime, and will continue to reinforce and reassure our NATO allies. Today, in response to Russia's admission that it will not withdraw its forces from Belarus, I have authorized additional movements of U.S. forces and equipment already stationed in Europe to strengthen our Baltic allies, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Let me be clear. These are totally defensive moves on our part. We have no intention of fighting Russia. We want to send an unmistakable message, though, that the United States, together with our allies, will defend every inch of NATO territory and abide by the commitments we made to NATO. We still believe that Russia is poised to go much further in launching a massive military attack against Ukraine. Hope I'm wrong about that. Hope we're wrong about that. But Russia has only escalated its threat against the rest of Ukrainian territory, including major cities and including the capital city of Kiev. There, there are still well over 150,000 Russian troops surrounding Ukraine. And as I said, Russian forces remain positioned in Belarus to attack Ukraine from the north, including warplanes and offensive missile systems. Russia has moved troops closer to Ukraine's border with Russia. Russia's naval vessels are maneuvering in the Black Sea to Ukraine's south, including amphibious assault ships missile cruisers, and submarines. None of us, none of us should be fooled. None of us will be fooled. There is no justification. Further Russian assault in Ukraine remains a severe threat in the days ahead. And if Russia proceeds, 
It is Russia and Russia alone that bears the responsibility. So the tricky line that Biden had to walk here was deterring without escalating, which is difficult. And so you have to respond in a way that's uh, proportional. And I think he kind of succeeded on that front. It wasn't easy. I think he threaded that needle. Now, I'm going to tell you in a second uh, what I think he misses in the speech, what would have been an important thing to say and a necessary thing to say. But uh, just to run through it real quick, so they're going to sanction two banks. They're cutting off Russia from financing their debt on Western markets. Uh, They're rolling out sanctions on oligarchs. It was announced previously, and I I believe this, I'm sure Biden had something to do with it, with phone calls and whatnot behind the scenes to Germany, but Germany is axing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, And then, of course, he says we're going to defend, we're going to send weapons to Ukraine. He stresses, look, these are defensive weapons. Um, of course, the, the, the nuance there is, for the love of God, kick the Azov Battalion out of the Ukrainian military. The Azov Battalion are like card-carrying neo-Nazis. Can't have U.S. weapons going to neo-Nazis. But in all seriousness, I don't think the U.S. really cares that much. I think, because we've previously armed them and funded them, and then there was a brief period where we cut it off because Congress took action, and then when nobody was looking, we started arming them again. So I don't think they care, but I think that's colossally important that you cut off arms going to neo-Nazis. Um, but here's what Biden didn't do, uh, and this says a lot. He didn't, do, he didn't go all in on banking sanctions. He could have sanctioned way more than just these two banks. Apparently, um, what some experts are saying is the two banks that he sanctioned, it's almost a little bit like window dressing. There, he could have sanctioned more powerful and important and widely used banks in Russia. He didn't do that. And he didn't do the, the, the switch sanctions, which are, you know, like cutting Russia off from the global banking system. So he's got a lot more in the tank. He's got a lot more in the tank. And this is just, you know, the first round. And what happens next will depend on what Vladimir Putin does. Um, <clears throat> now, again, I'm going to get to what Biden could have done differently and should have done differently in a second. But before I do that, I want to show this uh, next graphic to you. So let me throw this up on screen here. This is from the Financial Times in Europe. Why did Putin recognize the independence of two breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine? Now, the reason why I'm showing you this, look at the map there. So on the, on the right, that red portion, reddish portion, that's the area currently held by uh, separatist Russian forces or, you know, ethnically Russian Ukrainians who are separatists from Ukraine. They hold that region. Now, the historical region of Luhansk and Donetsk, which Putin just declared, oh, these are now independent republics, um, it actually includes the rest of the beige area there as well. So, in other words, this is, uh, Putin set it up for a fight, because he's not saying, hey, just the separatist regions that the separatists already control are their own uh, countries now, their own republics now. Uh, He's saying, no, this whole area, even the beige area, is the republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. But the issue here is, in the Beige area, the Ukrainian military still controls that territory. So it is set up for conflict, which means that, at the very least, uh, Putin has a a goal of clearing that territory of the Ukrainian military and making it uh, part of the separatist region. But beyond that, he also has troops uh, stationed in Belarus and elsewhere, which is like kind of encircling almost all of Ukraine. So he's clearly got uh, some more expansionist goals in mind here. Now, 
what could Biden have done differently? What Biden could have done, I actually, most of the speech I actually agree with. Again, I think it was, uh, I think the response was proportional. It deterred without escalating. Um, the sanctions package he proposed is one I can definitely support, specifically because I, I don't think it's going to hurt Russian civilians. If they're sanctioned, like the SWIFT banking sanctions would definitely hurt Russian civilians. Um, I don't think it's going to hurt them. And if it, if it ends up hurting them in an egregious way, I will definitely flip and say, look, that wasn't the right plan. You have to find a way to go after the corrupt government officials and the aggressors without going after the population of Russia. Um, but what he could have done differently and what he should have done is everything in the speech exactly the same, but just add this one line. NATO is not, not part, or excuse me, Ukraine is not part of NATO and it never will be. Now, why would you say that? Well, for the very simple reason, Zelensky already came out and said, our NATO bid has stalled, and it's basically a dream for us to join NATO. So Zelensky's admitting, like, look, we're, we, we can't really get into NATO. So Zelensky came out and said that. That alone should have been more of a deterrent for Putin. Now, it wasn't, okay? But if Biden comes out and says, Ukraine is not part of NATO and never will be, what happens? What happens is, number one, you're acknowledging reality. Number two, you just took away Putin's nominal, stress on the word nominal here, biggest grievance. So you go out there and say, look, you say this is the main thing you care about. Okay, well, we fully concede Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO. Now then what happens? Then all the pressure flips onto Putin. You just gave him the thing that he said he cares about the most. If he continues to invade, well, then the U.S. gets to rally the entire world to our side. All of NATO will be unified against what Russia just did. But beyond that, you've even now forced the hand of India and Russia, who are sort of, you know, semi-allies, or excuse me, you forced the hand of India and China, who are semi-allies with Russia. And so, because their, their statements at the United Nations on this were like sort of wishy-washy and vague and, and broad and very clearly trying to like split the difference. But if you go out there and say, Ukraine's not joining NATO and it never will be, then you force the hand of India and China to even line up on your side and against Vladimir Putin. Because by the way, if you say that, and then Vladimir Putin does continue to invade, well, then what? Then you know that his main concern indeed wasn't Ukraine joining NATO, that there are other grievances that he has. So, and that's an important point, and everybody needs to understand this. And don't take my word for it. I want you to, you know, look into this yourself so you know that this is the reality. I watched the entire Vladimir Putin speech, and half of the speech was, you know, NATO expansionism, Russia's under threat, and, you know, we can't, we can't abide that. We just can't. Uh, how would America feel if the roles were reversed and we were on their border, et cetera, et cetera. Now that stuff, look, there's agree or disagree with Putin, like or dislike Putin, that's fair. Like we can see the logic in that. But the other half of the speech, in fact, it was the first half of the speech, was Vladimir Putin with a laundry list of other grievances against Ukraine. And to sum it up for everybody, it goes something like this. Um, we built you up. We funded you. You're in a colossal amount of debt to us. We made you what you are. My stupid predecessors uh, had you as part of the Soviet Union. 
and gave you free reign to walk out whenever you wanted with, with no consequences. Um, we, we share a culture that, again, we helped build with you, and then now you turn your back on us. And now you're aligning with the West. And I, I, can't, I can't stand for that. So now hold on. That has nothing to do with NATO. That's a laundry list of other grievances where basically Vladimir Putin feels entitled to either all of Ukraine or part of Ukraine. And he kind of gives the game away there because, I mean, he just kind of talks as if he has imperial ambitions, as if he feels like my predecessors messed it up. The Soviet Union got stuff wrong. I want to uh, correct the, the ills, the wrongs of the Soviet Union and sort of reestablish a, a new Russian empire where we don't make the same mistakes. Okay, so look, I think it's the reality, but if you now just give Vladimir Putin the thing he says on NATO, okay, Ukraine's not going to be part of NATO. You got it. We're announcing it. It's official. What now? What's Putin going to do? I think it's a 65 or 70% chance he still invades Ukraine. And then the U.S. gets to turn around to the rest of the world and say, see, we gave him what he wanted, and he still was invading. That is Russian aggression. That is Russian imperialism. You know, he's the problem. He's the one being a warmonger here. And look, in the, whatever, 30% chance that he hears this and he spins it as a win to the Russian public and then withdraws, okay, then that's another huge win. <laughs> then it's like, great, we would want that. And then we'd also know it was more about um, NATO than anything else. Now, the reason why I, I now think it's, it's not just about NATO and not mostly about NATO is, again, because Zelensky came out and said, it's stalled and it's a, it's a dream for us to get in there. So that's Zelensky saying we're not really going to be part of NATO and Putin's still invading anyway. So, look, I think all this stuff is really important. Now, I will say this, because some people will hear what I'm saying now and they'll say, well, hold on. Who the hell is the U.S. to say, you know, if Ukraine wants to join NATO, shouldn't they be able to join NATO? Who the hell is the U.S. to say um, that uh, they can't join or to, to cut this deal in the first place? Well, there's a couple responses to that. Number one is, yes, step one is, do you want to join NATO to become part of NATO? Yes. But step two is, do the other NATO members agree? And according to Zelensky, there are multiple other NATO members who don't want Ukraine in. So even if they pass step one, they don't pass step two. They don't just get to, you know, magically say step two doesn't count, and I don't like it. That's just the way that it works. And the way it works right now, they're simply not going to get in there. Um, and then... Look, the other thing is, I'm sympathetic to the idea of like, they, people should democratically be able to choose. But if we're going to use that logic objectively, then you also need to say people in eastern Ukraine need to democratically choose whether or not they want to be part of Ukraine or be independent or be part of Russia. And I got bad news for you. If you leave that up to a democratic vote, in eastern Ukraine, they would probably vote to be with Russia. So if you're going to use this, well, the, the democratic approach is the only thing that matters in this geopolitical complex situation – well, then you have to take that position as well, that, okay, maybe Eastern Ukraine does go and be part of Russia. Now, my guess is a lot of the people who criticize my statement on NATO would, you know, flip their standard when it comes to um, Eastern Ukraine being part of Russia. And then, of course, the, the most obvious point is if Mexico and Canada joined a Russian anti-U.S. military alliance, would our leaders tolerate it? No, they would flip out. And of course they would say this is an act of aggression. Duh. <laughs> of course they would. 
In fact, we know that. We don't need to speculate because if you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's a very similar situation. That's what happened when Russia put their weapons in Cuba. We flipped out, and the whole world almost got destroyed as a result of that. So overall, I like Biden's response. Um, It's a proportional response. He's deterring without escalating, in my opinion. Um, But if he added that line about NATO and said, Ukraine is not part of NATO and never will be, well, then, I mean, it's almost like a checkmate of the Russian government if you do that. Because if Putin continues to invade, you get to turn around to the rest of the world and say, it wasn't even about NATO. See, he's just the aggressor. He was going to do this anyway. And if he doesn't invade, it's great. He didn't invade. That's exactly what we want, him not to invade. He pulled out. So, and again, again, you rally the rest of the world to your side. So I think that mostly good, but the fact that he's missing that last part does lead to the reality that even with responding properly, there might be further escalation now on the Russian side. I mean, my guess is, my guess is that he's got tricks up his sleeve, that Putin has got tricks up his sleeve, that he prepared for this in the long term. So he knew these sanctions were coming. He probably thought worse sanctions were coming, and he has contingency plans. And also, you've got to keep it real, Biden even said this in his speech, there are going to be other consequences as a result of this. So namely, Russia provides 10% of the world's natural gas. Well, gas prices are going to rise. You know, uh, I think Russia provides 60% of German natural gas. Well, you know, I'm sure we're going to try to make up that difference and give our natural gas to Germany. But prices are still probably going to rise because even if we ramp up production, the supply is going to be shorter because now you're using it in a variety of different places. And so the prices are going to go up even more. And understand that with Saudi Arabia, there's already a problem. Biden and Saudi Arabia are not getting along for a variety of reasons. So Saudi Arabia is trying to keep the, the gas prices high at the pump to squeeze out Biden and make sure he loses in the next election. So with Saudi being stingy with it, and now with the, the crisis with Russia, gas prices are probably going to go up more. So anyway, uh, that's the gist of it. It's a really bad scenario. It's a really bad situation. Um, I'm scared of a tit-for-tat escalation that gets out of control and can at some point lead to direct conflict between the U.S. and Russia, which, make no mistake about it, is World War III. We really can't afford to flirt with nuclear annihilation. That should go without saying. All things considered, his response was decent, but the fact that he didn't say the thing about NATO and didn't concede on the obvious point means uh, the U.S. government, in many respects, is just bullheaded and stupid because you had an opportunity to checkmate him. And you even could have done, you even could have said, uh, Ukraine is not part of NATO and never will be part of NATO. And we're going to give Russia, you know, three days now to get out of Ukraine. Because, hey, we're giving you exactly what you want. So now you're going to have three days to get out. If you don't get out, then we're going to drop the sanctions hammer on you. Could have done that. And again, would have rallied the world to our side. Would have been an obvious checkmate. It would have been able to prove what Putin's main motivation is. And then we could have gone on knowing. But they didn't do that. Um, Overall, a decent response, but missed a very crucial and important part, which we may end up paying the consequences for. Okay. All right, next. We are going to talk, I got Obama responding. Former President Obama has weighed in on Putin invading Ukraine. 
Now, there was a very famous back and forth in the 2012 presidential election when it was Obama versus Romney on this issue of Russia and foreign policy. And Obama had a line that at the time was a massive zinger um, where everybody said he crushed Romney. And so I'm going to play that for you in a second. And I also want to show you not only Obama's comments in 2012 on the issue of Russia, but also Obama in 2016. And this, look, this is even after um, you had everything go down with Crimea, where Putin effectively took Crimea, and I think it was 2014. So even after that, um, Obama came out, was asked about Russia and Russian aggression and weighed in on it. And um, he even referenced specifically if Russia goes into eastern Ukraine, which is literally exactly what's happening right this second. So, look, these are old comments that you're going to see, but they're directly pertinent to what's happening now because he cites the exact thing that ended up happening and he gives his opinion on it. So first, let's look at the debate back and forth. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat, because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda, you said Russia. In the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back, because you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. But, Governor, you know, when it comes to our foreign policy, you seem to want to import the foreign policies of the 1980s, just like the social policies of the 1950s, and the economic policies in the 1920s. You say that you're not interested in duplicating what happened in Iraq, but just a few weeks ago you said you think we should have more troops in Iraq right now. And the, the, the challenge we have, I know you haven't been in a position to, to actually execute foreign policy, but every time you've offered an opinion, you've been wrong. So now people are bringing this up and saying Mitt Romney was right, Mitt Romney was right, Mitt Romney was right. Um, no, I don't think so. I still disagree with Mitt Romney on this. The question is, who's the biggest threat to the United States? And at the time, the answer was obviously al-Qaeda. Um, and it wasn't Russia. And even today, Russia is a giant threat to Ukraine. Now, if we get too involved and, you know, we put U.S. boots on the ground or whatever, yeah, then maybe Russia will become a, a big threat to us. But if we handle it in a responsible way and in an intelligent way, Russia is not the biggest threat against us. You could say, hey, they're, they're now clearly a giant threat to global order and rules-based internationalism, but so are we, <laughs> and, and we're actually – Honestly, in a larger sense, we're a bigger threat to that. Now, that's not whataboutism, and that's not saying that what Russia is doing isn't aggression and imperialism and condemnable. It definitely is. But make no mistake about it, we support 73% of the world's dictatorships. We give them arms and funding, and then we turn around and pretend like we support democracy and human rights. My ass cheeks we support democracy and human rights. We're running around pretending that a guy named Juan Guaido, who didn't win an election in Venezuela, is currently the president of Venezuela. That's simply not true. We are currently occupying a large portion of Syria for the stated reason of stealing their gas or their oil. That's not me speaking. Donald Trump came out and admitted it. He said it. We're currently aiding and abetting a genocide in Yemen. We're helping Saudi Arabia do a genocide in Yemen. We're doing ruthless sanctions on Afghanistan where millions of people are starving. So... 
we are a bigger threat to, you know, the rules-based order, the international law. And I, I, I still think Obama's right here. Yeah, Russia is a giant threat to Ukraine. They invaded Ukraine. That is condemnable. That is wrong. We should take actions in response. Certain sanctions I would do as long as it doesn't hurt Russian civilians. But I still don't think it's fair to say that Mitt Romney was right here. I don't think that at all. Because the question is, who is the biggest threat to the United States? That's different. And in terms of who we're even competing with the most on the global stage, the answer is obviously China. Obviously China. They've now grown massively. Uh, They're doing the Belt and Road Initiative, which is just like empire by another name and by another tactic, empire through, um, you know, getting countries into debt and building them infrastructure and then, you know, exploiting them for their natural resources. It's just a smarter way of doing imperialism. And so they're gigantic. They're massively powerful. Um, since, even since 2012, they've been built up in a big way. So if you want to have that conversation about who's the, you know, the biggest, the second biggest power or the biggest threat to U.S. hegemony, the answer is obviously China. It's not Russia. Russia is actually a declining power. So everybody's giving Mitt Romney credit for this. I simply don't agree. I don't agree. And I'm sure Romney in 2014, when Russia was, doing, was taking Crimea, Romney was saying, see, I was right. But again, the question is, who's the biggest threat to the United States? Now, Obama weighed in. Uh, in 2016, he was asked about uh, Russian aggression and what they're doing. And his answer is interesting. So take a look at this. This is from The Atlantic and I think Jeffrey Goldberg. Obama's theory here is simple. Ukraine is a core Russian interest, but not an American one. So if Russia will always be able to maintain escalatory, so Russia will always be able to maintain escalatory dominance there. The fact is that Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country, is going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia no matter what we do, he said. I asked Obama whether his position on Ukraine was realistic or fatalistic. Quote, it's realistic, he said. But this is an example of where we have to be very clear about what our core interests are and what we are willing to go to war for. And at the end of the day, there's always going to be some ambiguity. He then offered up a critique he had heard directed against him in order to knock it down. I think that the best argument you can make on the side of those who are critics of my foreign policy is that the president doesn't exploit ambiguity enough. He doesn't maybe react in ways that might cause people to think, wow, this guy might be a little bit crazy. Let's continue. Let me show you the next part. Quote, there is no evidence in modern American foreign policy that that's how people respond. People respond based on what their imperatives are. And if it's really important to somebody and it's not that important to us, they know that. And we know that, he said. There are, there are ways to deter, but it re- requires you to be very clear ahead of time about what is worth going to war for and what is not. Now, if there is somebody in this town that would claim that we would consider going to war with Russia over Crimea and eastern Ukraine, they should speak up and be very clear about it. The idea that talking tough or engaging in some military action that is tangential to that particular area is somehow going to influence the decision-making of Russia or China is contrary to all evidence we have seen over the last 50 years. Obama went on to say that the belief in the possibilities of projected toughness is rooted in mythologies about Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. So, look, that's, it. that's Obama saying in no uncertain terms, um, if somebody really wants to go to war over Crimea or eastern Ukraine, they should be honest and say that. They should speak up and say that. And I agree with that point. If somebody really thinks we should have American boots on the ground uh, for Crimea or eastern Ukraine, say it. Don't dance around it. Just say it. 
Just own it. Own that position. I, there's one thing I despise more than anything else, people obscuring their real position. And clearly on this front, it annoys Obama. In other ways, Obama was hawkish, but I always gave him credit on normalizing relations with Cuba. I always gave him credit on the Iran deal. And I, I gave him credit on how he handled the situation in Crimea, because that could have escalated and spiraled out of control and been a total disaster. But I think he was level-headed, and I think he was reasonable in how he responded. Uh, they did some sanctions, but they didn't go insane with it. Now, honestly, I feel similar to how Biden's handling it, because I have no doubt that Biden's getting a tremendous amount of heat and pressure from the foreign policy establishment. So the intelligence agencies, the deep state. I guarantee you they're telling them, you got to go harsher. You got to go stronger. You do the swift banking sanctions. Cut Russia off from the global banking system right now. Put more U.S. boots on the ground. Put boots on the ground right on Russia's border. I guarantee you people are telling him this. And to this point, he's largely um, avoided doing the most extreme stuff. I think he responded in a proportional way that deters without escalating. So he did uh, the kind of sanctions that he did. He um, sanctioned two different banks in Russia. He cut off Russia from financing their debt on Western markets. And he sanctioned oligarchs and axed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I think that makes sense. He didn't do swift sanctions. He didn't go too far. Uh, he's, and he was very clear, no U.S. boots on the ground. So I, I do think that the Biden approach is similar to the Obama approach, and that's the best path forward. Again, the only difference I would have uh, done from what Biden did is I would have said, uh, Yes, Ukraine is not in NATO and will not be part of NATO. Because then you cut off what Putin says is his biggest concern. And so then if he turns around and continues to invade anyway, you get to say to the rest of the world, and they'll agree with you now, oh, I guess that wasn't actually your main concern. I guess that was a lie. I guess that was a cover story. I guess you were going to invade them no matter what. I guess you had other grievances that were equally or more important than the NATO thing, because we gave you what you said you wanted and you still invaded so I would have done the same thing, but also said Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO. So there you have it. Um, Obama 2012 on this stuff. And honestly, honestly, Biden today, I think they're way more reasonable than a lot of other Democrats and, and Republicans that are talking about this now. And we'll get to these stories as we move along. I've got a million of them. But, you know, Fox News the other night, there's a host talking about we need U.S. warplanes doing combat missions over eastern Ukraine right now. That's the guy literally saying we should do World War III for funsies, just casually. Yeah, like, let's go do that. You got other Fox News hosts like Peter Hegseth comes out and says, Biden needs to be tougher on Putin. Tell me exactly what you want. What exactly do you want Biden to do? Tell me. Tell me. Because anything that Biden does that's above and beyond what he already did is a giant escalation and will lead to massive blowback and will lead to, lead to huge economic consequences and will lead to, oh, my God, we're getting closer and closer to World War Three. So you got Republicans, oh, my God, Newt Gingrich comparing uh, Putin to Hitler and all this stuff going on on the right that's just crazy, right-wing media and right-wing politicians. But then you also have other Democratic politicians like, get tougher, tougher, and, you know, Democratic media. CNN, MSNBC. MSNBC had on John Bolton. We'll talk about that later. That guy's a neocon, warmonger, you know, imperialist criminal. The guy's got blood on his hands. 
and they invite this guy on who's been wrong on everything when it comes to foreign policy to casually give his opinion on foreign policy, and you'll never guess what he wants to do. Get tougher on Putin. So I think Obama had a level head on this stuff. I think Biden has a level head on this stuff. Uh, maybe Obama was slightly more level-headed. Not sure. We'll see. Time will tell. Um, but make no mistake about it, they're effectively fighting a battle behind the scenes between nefarious forces that would escalate even further. So cross your fingers and hope it doesn't get too bad. Okay, next. Donald Trump was speaking to Buck Sexton. That's a real name, by the way. Buck Sexton. It's basically a crime that that guy is not a porn star. I mean, I've seen him, so I don't want him to be a porn star, but the name Buck Sexton should be the name of a porn star. I think we could all agree on that. There is, uh, that is the left and right <laughs> joining in total agreement and unison and peace and harmony on that front. Well, uh, Trump spoke to Buck Sexton. Now, I'm not going to be able to get past that guy's name. And um, he told him what he thinks about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And his response is something. 24 hours, we know Russia has said that they are recognizing two breakaway regions of Ukraine. And now this White House is stating that this is an invasion. That's a strong word. What went wrong here? What is the current occupant of the Oval Office done that he could have done differently? Well, what went wrong was a rigged election. And what went wrong is a candidate that shouldn't be there and a man that has no concept of what he's doing. I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well, very, very well. By the way, this never would have happened with us. Had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. But here's a guy that says, you know, uh, I'm going to declare a big portion of Ukraine independent. He used the word independent. And we're going to go out and we're going to go in and we're going to help keep peace. you got to say that's pretty savvy. And you know what the response was from Biden? There was no response. They didn't have one for that. Now it's very sad. So at first when you're listening to it, and go back and listen to it again if you didn't get this sense, but I definitely got this sense. I've now listened to it three or four times. Um, he starts out being sarcastic. Like, oh, yeah, this is genius. How smart is that? Uh, it, it's now independent territory, and he's a peacekeeper. So he starts out being sarcastic. But then by the end, he gets serious. And he's like, that's very savvy. Wait, which is it? You were saying it was like, genius and smart, but you sounded sarcastic. So in other words, it sounded like the point he was trying to make is, this isn't genius, this isn't smart. Like, we all see through what you're doing here. But then by the end, he seems dead serious when he's like, that's, that's very savvy. That's a savvy thing. Okay, 
which is it? <laughs> which is it? Are you mocking the idea that it's genius and smart, or are you genuinely saying this is savvy? Because guess what, man? Look, it's the least savvy thing I've ever seen. It's textbook. So you don't just, like, you would be psychotic to just immediately invade, no pretense, no propaganda buildup. Like, I don't think anybody does that anymore. Uh, only maybe the dumbest leaders in the world. But you always see a propaganda campaign, and you always see, you know, guys, it's always the case that aggressors portray themselves as defensive and the victims. And we've done this all the time. When we illegally invaded Iraq, a country that didn't attack us, killed minimum 200,000 civilians, occupied it, etc., the whole time we were crying like we were the victim. So you got to build a propaganda campaign. Trump says this is savvy. All that happened was there were separatist regions in Ukraine ethnically Russian, backed by the Kremlin. Um, they were funded and supported. And then they say, oh, you know, we're under attack from Ukraine and they don't accept us and we're the victim. And then Russia acknowledges, oh, this has gone too far. Now you're independent republics. You're not even part of Ukraine. And then you sign a treaty to, to a mutual defense agreement where now the Russian government gets to come in and say, we're not invading the sovereign country of Ukraine. We're going to protect the independent republics of Donetsk and Lugansk. We're just on a peacekeeping mission. I mean, this is like, it's a, there's a thin veneer of civility over a wanton violation of international law. So it's not, it's not savvy. It's not genius. And it sounded at first like he knew that and he was being sarcastic. Then by the end, he's like, no, nah, that's savvy. And he even says like, yeah, I could do that at our southern border. I should do that at our southern border. Again, I don't know if that part's sarcastic or not, but yeah, no, this is, uh, this is old school textbook aggression. And uh, one of the reasons I know it's aggression is because it's sort of similar right out of our playbook when we do aggressive stuff. We played the victim going into Iraq. We played the victim going into Afghanistan. You know, we played the victim as we were torturing people like Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, you know? So you never, nobody ever comes out and says, I am the bad guy, I am the aggressor, I am the imperialist, and I will now partake in some evil wrongdoing. Nobody ever says that. There's always a cover story. <laughs> Duh. So, now, it, by the way, it is an interesting question to think. What would have happened under Donald Trump? Well, I, really, I don't buy the argument that like, oh, it never would have happened under us. I mean, it, it didn't happen under, <laughs> under Trump, to be fair. So in one sense, it's true. But the idea, like, if Trump got a second term, would Putin have still done this? Probably. He probably would have. Because when George W. Bush was in office, and George W. Bush was an absolute, you know, idiot psychopath too, arguably a worse president than Trump, just as unhinged, if not more unhinged, because look at what he did with foreign policy, um, Putin did it in Georgia. And then under Obama, he did it in Crimea. And now under Biden, he's doing it in eastern Ukraine. So he does it under Democratic and Republican administrations. There are, obviously, there are other factors at play here. Um, so, look, don't get it twisted. There was a lot of Russiagate idiocy around Donald Trump, where he's literally a puppet of Vladimir Putin. And I think all that stuff is garbage. But these comments are like classic Trump, where... He's just sort of in awe of authoritarian leaders. He really is. Like, you know, he said famously about Kim Jong-un, like, and then we fell in love. 
he sent me beautiful letters. There was a report the other week that he's still in contact with Kim Jong-un. It's like, what? What are you talking about? So, anyway, there you have it. Um, Donald Trump weighing in in a very classic Donald Trump kind of way. Okay. All right, now we got Bernie Sanders. Let's do it. So Bernie Sanders weighed in on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, I mean, some people were, were curious what he'd say, uh, for good reason. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn went on a much softer line in regards to the invasion. Um, he immediately brought up NATO, which on the one hand is reasonable, but, you know, I do also think it's important to be clear and say that I condemn an invasion of a sovereign country. That should be obvious, right? Well, um, Bernie Sanders went hard in the paint, perhaps in a way that's unexpected to some people. So take a look at this. Senator Bernie Sanders. So let me read the tweet part first. Vladimir Putin's latest invasion of Ukraine is an indefensible violation of international law, regardless of whatever false pretext he offers. There has always been a diplomatic solution to the situation. Tragically, Putin appears intent on rejecting it. News, Sanders' statement on U.S. response to Russia. Vladimir Putin's latest invasion of Ukraine is an indefensible violation of international law, regardless of whatever false pretext he offers. There has always been a diplomatic solution to the situation. Tragically, Putin appears intent on rejecting it. The United States must now work with our allies and the international community to impose serious sanctions on Putin and his oligarchs including denying them access to the billions of dollars they have stashed in European and American banks. The U.S. and our partners must also prepare for a worse scenario by helping Ukraine's neighbors care for refugees fleeing this conflict. Finally, in the longer term, we must invest in a global green energy transition away from fossil fuels, not only to combat climate change, but to deny authoritarian petrostates the revenues they require to survive. Okay, so the one thing I'm surprised by is that he didn't even, because even Biden has said this a number of times. Biden has said, we're not putting U.S. troops on the ground. We're, you know, and he was very clear, repeatedly stated in his various speeches on this. Um, I think trying to get the message across to Putin, we are acting defensively. We are acting defensively. Don't think it's offense. We're acting defensively. So I'm surprised Bernie didn't say the thing about we shouldn't put uh, U.S. troops on the ground. That'll escalate the situation. You know, we don't want to flirt with World War III. Uh, we want to find a way to de-escalate. But outside of that one line, I'm not surprised that Bernie said this stuff. So the one thing I just told you I was surprised by, but there's one other thing I think he should have said. Because, I mean, he's right. You have to condemn an invasion of a sovereign country, and that's exactly what's happening here with what Russia is doing. But if you watch Vladimir Putin's speech, as I'm going to keep bringing up, and I implore all of you to watch the speech, because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. He says it himself. When he lays out basically why he's doing what he's doing, half of the speech was about um, NATO expansionism and about how Russia feels under threat by the West because NATO has kept expanding closer and closer to them over time. But then the other half of the speech was about historic grievances against Ukraine, this idea that the Soviet Union built Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is in debt to the Soviet Union. We gave them everything and asked nothing of them. Uh, our, my stupid predecessors gave Ukraine the option to be in the Soviet Union, but pull out whenever they want with no strings attached. We built their culture. We made them what they are, and then they turned their back on us. 
So half of the rationale is, is nominally defensive. Hey, NATO's expanding and we feel under threat. And then the other half of the rationale is very clearly offensive and very clearly is yearning for a time of Russian empire. So what I'll say about Bernie's statement is the same thing I said about Biden's statement. I agree with the slate of sanctions Biden did because they're proportional. They deter without escalating. But there should have been some line about, look, if you just say Ukraine is not part of NATO and is not going to be part of NATO, well, then you take away Putin's excuse. So then if he continues to invade, the U.S. gets to rally the world to, to our side and say, see, it wasn't really about NATO. We just gave him what he wanted. We just said, okay, fine, Ukraine's not going to be part of NATO. Your move now, Vlad. Because if he still invades after that fact, then we know that that was more the cover story than the reality. And look, my guess, 65 to 70% chance he still continues to invade. That's my guess. Which means a very big portion of why he's invading, it has nothing to do with NATO, and it has to do with wanting to reestablish the Russian Empire. Some semblance of it. Little bits and pieces here and there, whatever he can get away with. And so I don't know why nobody's making that obvious point. Because there's no downside to it. Zelensky said it's not going to happen. It's a dream for us to be part of NATO now. Our NATO bid has stalled. Other NATO members don't want Ukraine in, and they've been open about that. They're not in now. They're not going to get in. Why not just go out there and say, okay, NATO's not going to be in, or Ukraine's not going to be in NATO. And then you undercut any argument Putin has, and then you even make it so India and China, who are riding the fence on this, even they'll side with the U.S. And you have a united world against what Vladimir Putin is doing here. So I don't know why even Bernie's not saying that obvious thing. I don't, like, there are a lot of lefties who are really angry at this Bernie statement. I'm not that angry at it. I really don't think it's difficult to state the obvious thing here, which is you do not invade sovereign nations, regardless of the, you know, wheelbarrow of grievances that you have with you. You don't do it. I condemn it every time the U.S. does it, so of course I'm going to condemn it when another nation does it. So I don't think, I'm not mad at Bernie for this. I think it's a Uh, overall a pretty reasonable statement. But number one, I would have added a line about um, no U.S. boots on the ground. And then number two, I I would have, if I was Bernie, I would have expected him to have something about negotiation and diplomacy and the potential path out is just admitting Ukraine's not going to be in NATO and then therefore cutting off any sort of rationalization or justification that Putin thinks he has. Because if he continues to invade, then you get to say to the world, and you'd be correct in saying it wasn't really about NATO. See? So anyway, there you have it. Not mad at Bernie. I know there are a lot of lefties mad at Bernie. Um, You shouldn't be. But yes, I wish he added one or two more lines, and then it would have been a much better statement. All right, next. So there was a moment, the night that um, Putin decided to invade Ukraine, uh, there was a moment where he was talking to fellow government officials. This is some sort of a press conference here. And um, he's going back and forth with his spy chief, and the spy chief accidentally says the quiet part loud here. So let's take a look, and then I'll respond. Chief, 
так сказать, западным партнерам можно дать последний шанс с тем, чтобы предложить им в кратчайшие сроки заставить Киев пойти на мир и выполнить мирские соглашения. В противном случае мы должны принять решение, о котором сегодня говорится. В противном случае вы предлагаете начать переговорный процесс? Нет, я или признавать средний А я... Говорите прямо. Я поддержу предложение о признании. Поддержу или поддерживаю. Говорите прямо. Поддерживаю предложение. Как скажите, да или не Поддерживаю предложение о вхождении Донецкой и Луганской народных республик в состав Российской Федерации. Мы об этом не говорим, мы этого не обсуждаем. Мы говорим о признании их независимости или нет. Да. Поддерживаю предложение о признании независимости. Хорошо. Садитесь. Спасибо. Владимир Александрович. That was awesome. So the spy chief, by the way, who's clearly nervous, he's clearly afraid of like, am I going to be thrown in the gulag or some shit here? He says, I support the proposal to welcome the Lugansk and Donetsk republics into the Russian Federation. And Putin's like, www.backitup.org.com backslash backslash rewind dot please shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up, peckerhead. What are you doing? So he got ahead of it. He got ahead of the propaganda campaign. This whole, this whole meeting is supposed to be Vladimir Putin being like, look, these regions are under attack. It's not fair. The Ukrainian government is the aggressor. We're in there to protect these new independent republics. And that's what they are. They're independent republics. He literally just signed the paperwork right before this saying these are independent republics. And then his dumb spy chief goes out there and says, I accept the proposal to welcome them into the Russian Federation. And Putin's like, nobody's talking about that right now. Nobody's talking about that. It's the, it's, we're recognizing their sovereignty, their sovereignty from Ukraine. So that's the plan. And I told you guys this. In the first, when, as soon as Putin announced he's invading Ukraine, that was the first thing I told you. Is, and go back and watch the video. I said, Here's my prediction. These independent republics will eventually have a democratic vote on joining Russia, and they'll say, yeah, we're joining Russia. That's the whole plan from the beginning. They, they, this is what will eventually happen. So they got ahead of it, though, because Putin was like, all right, we're all, we all got to be on the same page. We all have to say we're recognizing sovereignty because it's all, it's all a play. It's all theater for the international community to put a thin veneer of legality over clearly illegal actions. That's what it is. So, but it's funny, you know what I thought of as I was watching this? Trump. Trump. Because, you know, and this, to be fair, this happens with all, you know, modern U.S. presidencies, but Trump was uniquely worse on this front, the theater of everything, because they're just incompetent and they're all over the place and they don't plan well enough. And so, you know, you'd have these crazy moments in press conferences like Trump talking about, shining UV light up your asshole to defeat COVID and whatnot. Like, he had so many moments like that. Um, and this is like somebody who's part of Putin's administration who's like just missed the memo and thought 
we're adding them now as part of Russia, right? And Putin's like, no, you idiot. It's supposed to be about sovereignty at the moment. They're independent states. They're independent states. And by the way, final point, I brought this up before, but um, if you look at the map of Ukraine right now, what you see is the separatist-held regions in eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Lugansk. The separatist-held portion of Donetsk and Lugansk, it's only like 40% of that region. So there's another 60% of what's now been declared independent states that are controlled by the Ukrainian military. So Putin is setting up a fight. He's setting up a fight to say, I'm not, I'm being defensive. I'm not being offensive. Now these are independent republics. You're on the land of the independent republics. You got to get off the land, dog. And of course, internationally speaking, that's not, they're not actually independent republics. And that is Ukrainian land, especially the land that is currently held by Ukrainian forces. And so it's setting up a showdown. And based off everything that Zelensky said, he's like, we're not going anywhere. And we're not sacrificing anything. I mean, there was the Minsk agreement, um, which, which was, what, 2014, was it? Where, uh, I don't remember the exact date of it, so forgive me on that. But um, the Minsk agreement basically said, look, we get it. These regions are ethnically Russian, and um, they have grievances with the Ukrainian government. And so we're giving them, like, an extra level of independence while still acknowledging they are part of Ukraine. That, that's the general idea. And so now it just it went a step beyond where Putin is saying, no, because of Ukrainian aggression, now this region is their independent republics. And, of course, like I said, the long game is, and now they're part of Russia. But, you know, that area in between is going to present the biggest problem here. The area that they claim is part of the independent republics but is actually, actually is currently held by Ukrainian forces, oh, it could get ugly, guys. It could get bad. Not to mention the fact that there are also Russian forces in Belarus. And so you kind of have even Kiev, the capital city, which is um, west of the river, even that is uh, within striking distance. So it could get bad, man. I really hope that there's a way out of this. I, don't, I really don't think there is at this late date. Like I said, I would come out if I was the West and announce, I would do the sanctions Biden did because I think they're reasonable and proportional and they don't go too far and they deter without escalating. But I really think that, um, how many times have I done this rant? Do I really need to do it again? Um, I really think that if the West said, okay, Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO, there you go. That would be the best chess move you could do. Because if Putin claims that's really the reason I'm doing this, which he does claim that nominally, well, then if he continues to invade, you get to turn around the rest of the world and say, see, this is just rank aggression and imperialism. Because we just gave him the thing he said he wanted. And he's still doing it. So it ain't about the thing he said it was about. It's about him feeling entitled to this land because of the history, blood and soil bullshit. And we all disagree with that, right? And then you even rally China and India to your side and it's a unified global response to what he's doing. And um, that would be important. That would be important. So... Anyway, there you have it. Uh, They said the quiet part loud, and that was a giant mess up. Okay. Now we are finally off Ukraine and Russia, temporarily, not fully. Still got some stuff to to go to. 
I'm going to do two stories that are non-Russia and uh, Ukraine related, but I'll come back for a little bit too. All right. Tulsi Gabbard, it has been announced, is going to be a speaker at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Um, CPAC, and I'm sure all you know this from watching this show over the years, is a circus. It is very far-right people across the board. I'm not sure I've ever seen a, a lefty speak at CPAC. I don't think I've ever seen it. And they give us endless material every year. I mean, just incre- crazy, incredible stuff. I remember when Ben Carson compared Obamacare to slavery when he gave a speech there. I remember covering that. But anyway, let me show you this article here from The Hill. They'll give us more specifics. Former Representative Tulsi Gabbard is set to speak at the Conservative Political Action Conference this week. The chair of the group that organizes the gathering announced on Monday. Gabbard, who once saw the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination, will address the annual conference, conference's Ronald Reagan dinner on Saturday night. Conservative media personality Glenn Beck is set to give the keynote address during the dinner. Gabbard's scheduled appearance at CPAC, a gathering of conservative activists and elected officials, is unusual for a Democrat, though it won't be the first time she's rankled her own party. The former Hawaii congresswoman has repeatedly criticized members of her own party, most recently President Biden, whom she accused earlier this month of unnecessarily escalating tensions with Moscow amid a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. CPAC is set to begin on Thursday in Orlando, Florida. Among the other speakers scheduled to address the conference are former President Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo all three of whom are seen as potential contenders for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. It is hilarious to say Mike Pompeo is a contender. <laughs> he's going to try to be a contender, and he's going to get roughly 2%. Um, anyway, so I remember back when Bernie was running for president and he gave a speech at Liberty University, and it was based because Bernie went in there and said basically all left-wing stuff. I mean, maybe there were tiny little points of agreement with the conservative Christians at Liberty University, but pretty much everything was him going in there repping leftism because that's what Bernie does. So taking a different message to an ideologically separate room. Uh, but here's the difference. Tulsi's not going to do that. And we know she's not going to do that. Why? Because of her entire trajectory over the course of the past however many months. We know. So think about this, guys. She portrayed herself as the anti-war person. The anti-war person. Then when President Biden pulled the boots on the ground out of Afghanistan, the entire corporate media was shitting on him. All the Republicans were shitting on him. And even a lot of elected Democrats were shitting on him. Uh, There were only like three of us out here in the entire political landscape, the tiny little corner of it that we have, that were like, whoa, 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 wait, but he's doing the right thing. He's doing the right thing. They were acting like the withdrawal was worse than the 20-year war and occupation. They acted like it was the biggest crime imaginable to simply get our troops out of a war we'd been in for 20 years with no end in sight and no aims and no goals. Nobody even brought up the Afghanistan papers when we were withdrawing. The Afghanistan papers showing all the rank corruption and abuse and idiocy and incompetence. They acted like it was the worst thing Biden ever did when it was the right thing to do as a matter of principle. I was one of very few people defending Biden on that front. Tulsi Gabbard, the anti-war person, was MIA. Now, to be fair, at the time, she was on some active duty deployment. Okay, fair enough. But it's not like when she got back, she was like, oh, by the way, Biden was right, and y'all are fucking crazy for going after him as viciously as you did. She didn't say that. Now, by the way, there is stuff to go after Biden for, of course, but it wasn't the withdrawal. It's what happened after the withdrawal. It's now we got the endless sanctions on um, Afghanistan that are literally starving people to death. You could argue that's worse than the war, kind of is worse than the war. 
But again, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I haven't seen Tulsi talk about that. If I'm wrong, I hope I'm wrong, but I haven't seen her talk about that. So the anti-war person was MIA on that. But it gets worse. Remember when she went on Tucker Carlson and Tucker threw a softball down the center of the plate because Biden had just drone strike civilians in Afghanistan and pretended like they were getting some sort of ISIS faction. So Tucker invites on Tulsi to be like, droning innocent people is bad. And she didn't, that wor- those weren't the talking points she went with. She went with, look, we're in an existential war against radical Islamic extremism, and so you got to win that war, right? Even Tucker was like, I, I invited you on to say drone strikes are bad, and you pivoted to Muslim extremism bad. What does Muslim extremism have to do with when we kill innocent Muslims? It's got nothing to do with it. In that case, we're the extremists. We're the terrorists. We're the ones who killed innocent people. Totally misses it. Absolutely absurd. But it got, even, it got somehow worse than that. Because you still, still thought, okay, well, look, all this stuff is terrible and bad, but, I mean, she's been clear for a long time. She supports Medicare for all. She supports $15 minimum wage. She's not economically conservative, right? Well, then she does a Fox News appearance where she goes after Build Back Better from the right. She attacks it for, oh, there's so much big spending in this bill, and there's so much inflation that we got to worry about, and this is just the unnecessary expansion of government. She, she even did an appearance with Hannity where Hannity was like, I think you're one of us now. Tulsi's like, maybe I am. So what happened? What happened? Look, I am, you guys know me. I'm not the kind of person who goes after intentions unless there's overwhelming evidence. But is it a possibility that the intentions here are not exactly pure? Of course it is. So is this just, look, uh, all the lanes for me are cut out in the Democratic Party, so now I'm going to make a lane for myself as, you know, the turncoat, as the one who evolved to conservatism? That's possible. It could be planned out like that. Is it possible that she had a genuine, you know, ideological change? Sure. But I'll say to you the same thing I said back when we were talking about Dave Rubin, which is normally that sort of shit happens when you're 17, it doesn't happen when you're a grown-ass man. Like, Dave Rubin was like 40 years old when he somehow flipped on literally every single policy view that he had. You're 40 years old, and you flip on, like, every policy view you have? I don't know, dog. A little bit sketchy. Now, it's not impossible. There are people who are like that. Fair enough. There are some. But is that the case with these particular figures? I'll leave that up to you. I'm not going to cast any aspersions that I can't back up with evidence. But either way... I massively disagree with her. Either way, whether it's exploiting a lane and it's pre-planned out or if it's a genuine evolution, either way, it is wrong. Elder care, universal pre-K, lower prescription drug prices, Medicare expansion, extended child tax credit, all of those things are objectively good, and she opposed the bill that had it in them. Those things are objectively good, she opposed it. It was objectively correct to pull out of Afghanistan. She opposed it. Or not that she opposed it. She didn't say anything about it when she portrayed herself as I'm the the anti-war person. When you drone strike innocent civilians, it is not the proper thing to say afterwards, there's a lot of Muslim extremists and we got to defeat Muslim extremism. You know what I'm saying? Goddamn, man. Anyway, I don't know what happened, but this is where we are now. 
And um, the only uh, silver lining is, well, now she just has a totally new crowd. Like her original people who were with her, they're all gone, you know. It's just now it's some other uh, demographic group, some other contingent that has um, gone all in on the Tulsi train. But the OGs who were with her when she stood up for Bernie Sanders and tried to portray herself as leftist, I mean – I don't know a single one that's like, yeah, I'm still with her on everything, because you can't be, unless you've also changed your ideology massively. All right, next, let's talk about Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse went on Tucker Carlson's show, and he announced a new initiative that he's doing. I want to show you the video, and then we'll respond to it. Yeah, I mean, they tried to imprison you for the rest of your life. It wasn't coverage. It was advocacy. You have a lot of potential targets to sue yourself. Will you be suing any of these news organizations, and if so, when? Um, Well, right now we're looking at quite a few uh, politicians, celebrities, athletes. Whoopi Goldberg's on the list. She called me a murderer after I was acquitted by a jury of my peers. She went on to still say that. And there's others. Don't forget about Sank from the Young Turks. He called me a murderer before verdict and continues to call me a murderer. Interesting. And, and what about the people who called you groundlessly a white supremacist, which makes it pretty hard to get a job for the rest of your life if you're a white supremacist. Will you be responding to them? Absolutely. We are going to hold everybody who's lied about me accountable, such as... Um, uh, everybody who's lied called me a white supremacist. Yeah. They're all going to be held accountable, and we're going to handle them in a courtroom. Covering House, I appreciate you announcing that tonight, the Media Accountability Project, and of course... The Media Accountability Project. Media Accountability Project. Let me show you what Edward Snowden said in response to this. Edward Snowden said, quote, A free press can be good or bad, But without freedom, the press will never be anything but bad. As someone called worse things by bigger names, lawsuits against newspapers over hurt feelings and even false claims are not the answer. Won't fix people, but will harm rights. So, look, it doesn't matter what your personal take on the Kyle Rittenhouse case was. It doesn't matter at all. This is simply a matter of freedom of speech. And the same people who cry and whine about, look, we got to support freedom of speech no matter what, are now hopping on board with something that the whole foundation is to curtail freedom of speech? Curtail it. Curtail it. Now, he'll say, well, look, I, you know, this, this is different. This is not freedom of speech because it's defamation, it's libel, it's slander. These are the arguments that he would make. I simply do not buy that argument for this obvious reason. My dude, you were on trial. So if somebody says, hey, I think you're a murderer, that's just them saying I disagreed with the decision of the jury. And if I was on the jury, I would have said you're a murderer. Are you banning people from having that opinion? They're not allowed to voice that opinion? Look, I'll increase my vulnerability in this conversation and admit to everybody, even though I think Kyle Rittenhouse is a 
he shouldn't have been there that night, period. You're a young kid. You've got a gun. You're at this, you know, this crazy gathering. You know it's a, it's a massive risk to be there. You know things can go sideways. You're not mature enough to be there. Shouldn't have been there in the first place. But if I was on that jury, could I have found him guilty? I couldn't have. Because the way everything unfolded, when you look at the nuances and the specifics of how it went down, he has a somewhat reasonable case for self-defense. So I don't even agree with Whoopi or Jank in terms of how I would have voted if I was on the jury. But you cannot ban them for having the opinion that they would have disagreed and voted guilty. You just can't do it. You can't do it. Okay, guys, just this week, and this, I mean, this, Snowden said it best. Um, he gets accused of way worse than I've ever been accused of, without a doubt. But just this week, how many people now think I'm uh, a Kremlin asset because of my take on Russia and Ukraine? And then there's another group of people who say I'm a CIA asset. So you have two different groups of people, both doing what, you know, if I want to get all up in my feces and get outraged and offended, and if I want to be a snowflake and be triggered, I can say, look, this is libel, slander, defamation. None of that is true. It's objectively false, and it's rumors that spread like wildfire. So do I have the right? Should I have the right to sue people or take down their Twitter accounts or not allow them to speak anymore or give their opinion? Of course not. If you are any semblance of a public figure, whether you want it to be that or not, and people say really mean things about you or factually untrue things about you, it's still legal. The bar to clear for it to be libel or slander or defamation is super high for a good reason. For the reason of freedom of speech and free expression and a free press. And again, now the same people who cry and whine and bitch and moan all the time about, oh, deplatforming and censorship and crackdowns on free speech. Now they are the advocates of said things. Tucker's advocating it. You know, thanking him for founding this media accountability project. Suing people for having a different opinion. You could even say it's a wrong opinion. Fine, but it doesn't matter. You can't sue them, shut them up, shake them down for money because they believe what they believe. So, I mean, just for the love of God, the... I'm getting whiplash from the flip-flopping. I really am. So, look, keep it real with you. www.getoverit.com, peckerhead. But I should be careful. Maybe he'll sue me for calling him a peckerhead. Okay. All right, back to, back to Russia and Ukraine. Sorry, everybody, got to do it. So the UN the other day had an emergency meeting when Russia invaded Ukraine. And um, everybody went around and said what their position is for their respective governments. And to my surprise, I think most of the statements were good. The only people who sort of rode the fence, it was India and China, and they were clearly doing it for political reasons, for, you know, whatever economic ties and diplomatic ties they have with Russia. Um, But most of the statements were solid. The best one is what I'm about to show you right here. This is the Kenyan UN ambassador uh, giving the Kenyan government position on Russia invading Ukraine. Let's take a look and then I'll react. Kenya is gravely concerned by the announcement made by the Russian Federation to recognize Donetsk and Luhansk regions of Ukraine as independent states. In our considered view, 
this action and announcement breaches the territorial integrity of, of Ukraine. We do not deny that there may be serious security concerns in these regions, but they cannot justify today's recognition of these regions as independent states, not when there are multiple diplomatic tracks available and underway that have the ability to offer peaceful solutions. Mr. President, this situation echoes our history. Kenya and almost every African country was birthed by the ending of empire. Our borders were not of our own drawing. They were drawn in the distant colonial metropoles of London, Paris, and Lisbon, with no regard for the ancient nations that they cleaved apart. Today, across the border of every single African country live our countrymen, with whom we share deep historical, cultural, and linguistic bonds. Our independence had we chosen to pursue states on the basis of ethnic, racial, or religious homogeneity, we would still be waging bloody wars these many decades later. Instead, we agreed that we would settle for the borders that we inherited, but we would still pursue continental political, economic, and legal integration. Rather than form nations that looked ever backwards into history with a dangerous nostalgia, we chose to look forward to a greatness none of our many nations and peoples had ever known. We chose to follow the rules of the Organization of African Unity and the United Nations Charter, not because our borders satisfied us, but because we wanted something greater, forged in peace. We rejected irredentism and expansionism on any basis, including racial, ethnic, religious, or cultural factors. We, re we reject it again today. Kenya registers its strong concern and opposition to the recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states. We further strongly condemn the trend in the last few decades of powerful states, including members of this Security Council, breaching international law with little regard. Multilateralism lies on its deathbed tonight. It has been assaulted today as it, as it has been by other powerful states in the recent past. We call on all members to rally behind the Secretary General in asking him to rally us all to the standard that defends multilateralism. We also call on him to bring his good officers to bear to help the concerned parties resolve this situation by peaceful means. Let me conclude, Mr. President, by reaffirming Kenya's respect for the territorial integrity of Ukraine within its internationally recognized border. Thank you. That statement was damn near perfection. It really was. Here's why it's so brilliant. It is absolutely clear and unequivocal on the basic fact that Russia cannot invade Ukraine and violate their territorial sovereignty, while also um, being nuanced enough to point out the obvious reality that the United States is lecturing about human rights right now, and we don't give a fuck about human rights. There's a line or two in there that's like, come on, dog, you got to stop pretending like, oh, we care deeply about human rights. No, you don't. We illegally invaded Iraq, killed minimum 200,000 innocent civilians, did torture you know, right now we support 73% of the world's dictatorships and arm them, and we care about democracy and human rights. My ass cheeks, we care about democracy and human rights. No way. So it's just, it's, it's perfect. And the other reason it's perfect is um, I love the point about we understand colonialism. And then we also understand that post-colonialism, yeah, we inherited these borders. These borders, it wasn't like ethnically pure little blocks here and there. But you know what? I'm against an ethno-state. 
Maybe what we need to do is have a melting pot and learn to get along with people who aren't exactly like us in every single way, shape, and form. So in other words, what he's doing is he's contesting this idea from Russia that, oh, so there are, are ethnically Russian Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine? Okay. And? And? What, you think that entitles you to a piece of Ukraine? No, it doesn't. And then also what he does is stresses diplomacy and says, look, there are multiple diplomatic paths. You can't do this. You can't go down this road. And so, listen, I've said this in every segment on Russia and Ukraine. I'll say it again right now. If you listen to Vladimir Putin's speech, in his own words, it's about an hour-long speech. He's very clear about everything he believes. The first half of the speech is about Ukraine owes us. They owe a debt to us. We built them up. We made them what they are. We invested massively in them. My idiot predecessors gave them the opportunity if they want to, to just pull out of the Soviet Union, no strings attached. I'm against that. Shouldn't have done that. So the first half of the speech is all about historical grievances against Ukraine. And then the second half of the speech is about NATO expansionism and how he feels like NATO expanding is a genuine threat to Russia. So look, on the second half of the speech, okay, there are points there that we can address and we can negotiate around and we can do diplomacy and we can find a way to de-escalate. But to the first half of the speech, there's really no way around it. You've got a www.getoverit.org. And so if the West were to come out and say, you want diplomacy, here's diplomacy. NATO is currently not, or excuse me, Ukraine is currently not part of NATO, and it won't ever be. There you go. We gave you exactly what you wanted. Now what are you going to do? So in other words, you give him the thing that he nominally says he cares about the most, and then if he still invades, you get to go, see, it wasn't really about NATO. It wasn't really about NATO. It was about the other stuff. It was about the historical grievances. It was about blood and soil. It was about, I feel like I have a right to this because it used to be ours. It's about reestablishing some semblance of the Russian Empire and returning it to its former glory. That's what it's about. He just proved it. So, look, I think that's the only way out here. If I was Biden, I don't disagree with Biden's sanctions package. I think it was reasonable. It didn't go overboard. It was proportional. It tries to deter without escalating. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually with Biden on that. But I would have, if I gave Biden's speech, I would have said very simply, NATO, uh, Russia is, excuse me, Ukraine is not part of NATO, and it never will be. And uh, we'll give Russia three days to decide its path. If Russia continues to invade, well, then we know this was never about NATO. And it's about expansionist goals and imperialism. And look, again, hollow criticism coming from us, because we are currently the world's sole superpower, and we are imperialist. We are literally aiding and abetting a genocide in Yemen as we speak. We're sanctioning Afghanistan where millions of people are starving. So don't get it twisted. I'm not saying it's a, it's a strong criticism from the U.S. to go after Russian imperialism because if the U.S. really wants to make the world better, we could cease engaging in our own imperialism and our own terrorism. Sort of a hollow point. But it also happens to be true, regardless of who the source is, that if we concede on the Ukraine-NATO point and they still invade, it's, you know, the whole world rallies to our side. Like, literally all of the world, except maybe Syria and Iran. So, there you have it. Love the Kenyan speech. It was brilliant. And um, if only every nation thought like this. All right, one more, then we'll take a break. MSN.
MSNBC decided it would be a good idea to ask the advice of a bloodthirsty neocon war criminal about the issue of war. So John Bolton here was asked about um, Putin invading Ukraine. You're not going to be surprised to hear he doesn't think the U.S. is being tough enough. Let's talk about deterrence. How do you deter Vladimir Putin? He seems absolutely determined to do what he is uh, about to do because he's amassed this force. Do you see him backing down? Uh, I don't at this point. Look, the president announced on Friday that his policy had failed. He said unequivocally the Russian decision to invade Ukraine had been made. That's, that's an admission that deterrence has failed. And yet you can still hear today from your report that they, they count on holding back sanctions to maintain deterrence. If deterrence has failed, the answer is to come up with new steps, certainly to bring the guillotine down on all of the sanctions they've been contemplating and take additional steps if they want to stop any further military action. Their, their admission that they're engaged in gradual escalation of sanctions is a further admission of a, a disastrous failure of policy. The U.S. will not send troops in to rescue Americans. There are several thousand Americans still in Ukraine or others who may be on this kill list, this hit list that we have been reporting on, that Putin has of resistors, insurgents, others that he wants to arrest and, you know, or, or eliminate. Do you think that U.S. forces should actually go in to defend Ukraine? Well, I think it's probably too late for that now, but I would say this. The red line between being a treaty ally of the United States and not being one is significant. But the issue, as in all issues like this, is would a Russian invasion and takeover of Ukraine adversely affect American national security and that of its NATO allies? The answer to that is absolutely yes. Uh, would people say if Russia invaded Finland, not a NATO ally, would they say, well, that doesn't have any influence on American security? You can have an influence, a negative influence on our security, even if you're not a NATO ally. And we did not act appropriately early. I think we should have had more American forces in Ukraine, not to fight the Russians, but to train with the Ukrainians and to show those Russian generals looking across the border and seeing American flags. I wonder what that means. Biden took that off the table, saying there would be no American forces involved, and he got nothing for it. You know, just to go back to the Trump years, because you have to there. Well, why not? Well, why not is because that's when Ukraine became so politicized as part of an impeachment. That's exactly right. And as part of decisions and conversations, there was one call in particular, that so-called perfect call that Trump had with, you know, Zelensky, which, you know, certainly telegraphed to the Kremlin that they could do what they wanted with Ukraine, that America would not stand up. Well, I think uh, uh, Putin was undoubtedly waiting for a second Trump term, but uh, he's getting effectively almost what he would have expected then. This is going to be a victory for Russia. That was just glorious. So, in other words, Trump was too weak on Russia. Biden is being too weak on Russia. What exactly does John Bolton want? What do you want? What policy goals are you in favor of? What do you want? In the case of uh, Trump, he's not a, he didn't allow the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He didn't allow that. There was a scandal about the U.S. arming neo-Nazi rebels in Ukraine. We were doing NATO exercises right on Russia's border. So he did the whole swath of hawkish neoconservative action. He did all of them. What more did you want? You want more NATO exercises on Russia's border? You want U.S. troop exercises on Russia's border? 
You want the, the, whole sanction, the whole slate of sanctions up front? Is that what you want? And look, that's the thing. He's not, be honest, be upfront with what you want. So he's very clear. He says a gradual escalation of sanctions is wrong. It didn't work. That's what he's saying. Okay, but John, here's the problem with that. Let's say you unleashed all the sanctions under the sun. First of all, it's going to hurt Russian civilians, which is terrible and condemnable, and you should care just as much about Russian civilians as you care about American civilians and any other civilians around the world. But also, if you do those sanctions, and then Russia still invades, where do you go from there? We, did every, we fired every sanction that we had in the cannon, and then Russia still did it. What do you do from there, John? What do you do? You know what the answer is. You know what the answer is. It's boots on the ground. It's warplanes in the air. It's literally World War III. This is why this guy is such a monumental moron on top of being a bloodthirsty, warmonger, neocon hack. Because the answer is always more war. Remember, we were engaged in negotiations with North Korea, and John Bolton comes out and says, we're looking at doing the Libya model with North Korea. The Libya model? Libya is when Gaddafi gave up his weapons and then we toppled him anyway. So you're telling to Kim Jong-un as we're negotiating with him, don't trust us, don't make a deal. So he literally just doesn't want a deal. He doesn't want peace. He is anti-peace. Then when he's asked directly, should U.S. forces go in, he says, quote, it's too late for that. We should have gone in not to fight the Russians, but to train the Ukrainians. And wouldn't it be great if there were American flags flying right next to Russia's border and the generals could see it? Uh, no, that would have been terrible. That would have been as big of an escalation as if there were Russian troops doing war games right on Mexico's border or Canada's border. We wouldn't look at that as like, they sure are being defensive. We, we would have been like, holy shit, we're about to be invaded. Holy shit. God, he's wrong about everything. And then also the idea, like, should U.S. forces go in? He says, it's too late for that. But wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. So was there a time when it wasn't too late for that? So there was a different time when you would have had U.S. boots on the ground all throughout Ukraine, all over Russia's border, and you think that is, by definition, not offensive? Look, guys, I, in no uncertain terms, I condemn Russia invading Ukraine. You don't invade sovereign country, the countries. That is obvious. That is simple. That is straightforward. There's no boatload of rationalizations you could drag uh, in order to defend that. I think anybody who's defending that is wrong-headed. They're just wrong. It is also the case, though, that Western leaders have, in part, gotten us to the place we are right now. Why? Because half of Vladimir Putin's concerns, according to himself, is NATO expansion, is Western aggression. He views it as Western aggression. So if the West just said, okay, Ukraine is not a NATO member state, and um, they never will be, well, then if Vladimir Putin continues to invade and there's a 60 or 70% chance he would still invade, well, then he gets to turn around to the rest of the world and say, it wasn't about NATO, see? It was about the other stuff he complained about, namely the historical grievances against Ukraine where he thinks Ukraine stabbed Russia in the back and Ukraine took advantage of Russia and, you know, Ukraine is in debt to Russia and not paying back that debt and we had a share of culture and you turned your back on us and went to the West. It's all the other reasons. But you would be able to prove that if you acted in an open and honest and fair and diplomatic way where you negotiated and acted in good faith and said, look, some of your concerns we're going to concede to. You don't have to concede to all of them. You don't have to concede to all of them. You know, the idea you can never arm any faction of Ukraine, even if, you know, you ax the Azov Battalion and you just have the Russian, or excuse me, Ukrainian defense forces. I'm not conceding on that one. They're a sovereign nation. They have a right to defend themselves. But, yeah, will we reel in the fucking war games on your border? And will we say uh, Ukraine won't be part of NATO? Yeah. Because then, if you make a genuine effort towards peace, if he continues to not be peaceful, you get to say, wasn't us. Wasn't us. We conceded plenty. God, he's wrong about everything. The guy's wrong about everything. Every prediction he made about Iraq was dead wrong. Afghanistan, dead wrong. And here he is again.
but the same garbage. The same garbage. And it's hollow. Any sort of criticism of Russia from him is hollow as fuck. Because this is a guy who, under the Trump administration, Trump was like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to occupy part of Syria and jack their oil. And Bolton's right there like, that's the right thing to do. And then now you're going to complain about territorial sovereignty? Please. There are, all these criticisms are legitimate, but the source matters. And here you have a rampant neocon imperialist war, war hawk a bloodthirsty psychopath, and he's guilty of everything he would accuse Russia of and more. Let's take a break. When we come back, um, we got Fox News going insane on Russia, and then um, we'll get to other – the rest of the show after that will be all non-Russia-Ukraine stuff. And there's plenty of good stuff, too, so you don't want to miss it. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
We are back, bitch. We are back, bitch. I was tweeting about this last night. Rafa Nadal, one of the best tennis players of all time, if not the best tennis player of all time, beating everybody now with major count, got 21, Federer has 20, Djokovic has 20. Um, I've been watching a bunch of tennis recently. Nadal picks like 147 wedgies throughout the course of his matches. I mean, it is preposterous. It is literally part of his pre-serve routine to pick his wedgie. Somebody's got to introduce homeboy to boxers, man. Look, the year's 2022. It's official. I'm going on a jihad against not just tidy whities but also boxer briefs. Now, I get it. I'm in the minority on team boxers, but when I'm president on day one, I am banning briefs and boxer briefs. And all of you might flip out, and I might drop in the poll seven or eight points, but within a month or two, I'll be up 15 points. Because let me tell you something. Boxers are far superior I mean, it's not even close. And don't, like, some people would say, no, you get worse wedgies with boxers. Let me tell you guys, I've never picked a wedgie in my life. In my life. Now, part of that could be because I have the most man-ass of all man-asses. But the other part of it is that boxers are not wedging me up, dog. So Rafa Nadal, wear some goddamn boxers and cut that wedgie quota in half. Because I'm tired of seeing you dig all up in your ass cheeks. All right. That was random. <laughs> All right, let's continue. Fox News uh, talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Biden's reaction. And look, the whole network is just Republican propaganda. So they don't even have a position to take. They just know they disagree with Biden. And of course, since it's Fox, they can't help but disagree with Biden from the right. So let's see what they have to say, and then we'll respond. Uh, your reaction to what we saw there at the State Department and what you heard from President Biden this afternoon? Yeah, a lot of words, a lot of talk about agreements, sanctions. What I saw in that, in that briefing room was impotence and, and resignation. Two people resigned to whatever Vladimir Putin is deciding to do. And, 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 and Anthony Blinken talked about laying out the playbook. What have we done? We've laid out the playbook at every step of what Vladimir Putin has done, except they, it doesn't feel like we've done it as a, as a, as a ref or a coach, or even a player, more like an observer, uh, outside of what's happening there, totally resigned because the leverage we once had, which is, which is ultimately energy, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, they, Russia supplies 10% of the world's oil, a third of Europe's oil, 60% of Germany's oil. Back to Ronald Reagan, we were trying to stop pipelines from, from, uh, from the USSR to Europe. We didn't stop it. Donald Trump wanted to stop it, so they did have that leverage. They do have those opportunities. And so we're just an observer at this point. And we were talking, Dana, as we were watching, where's the pound-the-table moment of we will not allow this to happen? Do you think Vladimir Putin is concerned at this moment about a single sheet of paper or a single sanction that we've talked about so far? And that's why it all felt very impotent. So what do you want him to do? What do you want him to do? Stop obscuring. Stop dancing around it. Be direct. Be straightforward. What are your policy prescriptions? Go. They don't give it to you because they don't have any. And by the way, he's talking about, like, the pipeline. They axed the pipeline. They axed the pipeline in response to Russian aggression. What else do you want? Well, sanctions aren't doing anything. You think Vladimir Putin's scared of a piece of paper? Well, what's left if there's no sanctions? Go. What's left? Boots on the ground? 
war, which means World War III, which means nuclear annihilation, which means the end of the world. Oh, Kyle, that's hyperbolic. What do you think happens when two nuclear-armed powers are in literal conflict, physical confrontation, where there are dead bodies and families ruined? What do you think war is? This false sense of security everybody has, like, yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll be fine. Will we? Will we? Do you really have that much faith in the intelligence of our leaders? Do you have that much faith in the military-industrial complex in the U.S. and in the uh, the hyper-capitalist, oligarch, thuggish imperialism of uh, Vladimir Putin? That was a mouthful. <laughs> All those descriptors were a fucking mouthful. But do you... You think an authoritarian like Putin is oh so rational? You think the military-industrial complex running the show in the U.S. and the intelligence agencies are also are oh so rational? That if we get into some sort of conflict, it'll be okay. We'll work it out. I don't think so. So what do you want? Look, how many times do I have to tell you guys? I'll go through what were Biden's um, what were Biden's policy prescriptions? What did he do after the invasion? Well, thankfully we jotted him down. Um, so he's sanctioning two banks. Two Russian banks. He's cutting off Russia's ability uh, to finance their debt on Western markets. And he's sanctioning oligarchs, and he's axing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And the, they're sending weapons to Ukraine that Biden stresses are defensive weapons. Now, look, can't arm the Azov Battalion. They're neo-Nazis. That'd be psychotic. We've already done it. It's terrible. Uh, can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. That's you aiding and abetting terrorism. And I have no doubt the Azov Battalion would go after civilians in Russian-held territory. So, um, but that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. What else do you want? So he's saying be tougher. Pound the table. But what else do you want? All that's left is what? The SWIFT sanctions. Cut off all of Russia from the global banking system. So in other words, you crash the Russian economy overnight. That doesn't just hurt the government and the elites and the oligarchs. That also hurts Russian civilians. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Own it. Own it if that's what you want. So either he's talking about going further with the sanctions or, or he's saying... And welcome Ukraine into NATO, and then let's go, let's go for it. Let's do a war. Whatever he's saying, it's stupid. Because anything above and beyond what Biden did is stupid. What I would have done is the sanction package Biden did, but I also would have said, okay, Ukraine is not in NATO currently, and they never will be. Zelensky already admitted that. He said it's a kind of a dream for us to be in NATO. It's stalled. It's not going anywhere. A bunch of NATO members don't even want it. It's not happening. We're just going to acknowledge reality here. It's not happening. That's what Zelensky said. If Biden comes out and says that, and NATO comes out and says that, well, then you undercut Putin's entire argument because he pretends like the, you know, his biggest reason for invading is because of Western, Western aggression and Ukraine maybe joining NATO. So if you come out and say, they're not joining NATO, you win. Well, then what happens? Then the entire world rallies against Vladimir Putin, because if he continues to invade, and I think there's a 60%, 70% chance he still would invade, because it's not just about NATO, it's about historical grievances he has against Ukraine, well, then you get to say, look, it wasn't even about NATO. We gave him what he wanted, and he's still invading anyway. So who's the bad guy here? And having a united world against what he's doing is uh, huge, huge. Right now, it's, you know, it's mostly united, but there's still holdouts, India and China, are sort of riding the fence on it because they have, you know, diplomatic and economic ties. But if you, you know, if you get everybody united by being reasonable and negotiating and doing diplomacy, you could even say, Ukraine's not going to be in NATO. We're going to give you three days to withdraw. If you do withdraw, great. Wonderful. Everybody's happy if you do that. If you don't, well, now we know it was never about NATO. 
and now we know you have sphere of influence goals and domination goals and taking over sovereign country goals and reestablishing bits and pieces of a Russian empire goal. So, but they're never going to tell you, they're not going to tell you what they want to do because all they have is empty, hollow, virtue signaling criticism of Joe Biden bad. Well, thank you for your addition to the conversation. We really appreciate it. All right, next. Time for a big old fat uh-oh. We got a little uh-oh for everybody. Let's take a look. This is in National Post. Motion extended emer- motion to extend Emergencies Act approved in House of Commons. The NDP voted in favor alongside the minority liberals with some expressing concerns a no vote would have toppled the government. Really? So let's see what else they say here. Uh, the House of Commons on Monday night approved the extraordinary and temporary measures in the Emergencies Act, he- heeding Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's warning that the state of emergency is not over. Even though police ended a three-week occupation in Ottawa and reopened border, point- reopened border points to the U.S., the motion to confirm the declaration of emergency passed 185 to 151 with the New Democrats, which is the left party, voting in favor alongside the minority liberal government. The conservatives and the bloc Quebecois opposed it. The vote to approve the measure will keep them in place until mid-March at the latest, and the Senate must also vote on the government's request. See, this is what I like to call bad. This is what I like to call very bad. Because we saw this, of course, with the Patriot Act in the U.S. after 9-11, all these restrictions of civil civil liberties and curtailing your rights. And the argument is, hey, man, we got to stop the terrorists. So you got to give us these powers. And everybody said, okay, look, we were just attacked. We'll give you the powers. And then we learned very quickly, oh, you're not, you're not just using this to go after terrorists. In fact, it is mostly used not to go after terrorists. The NSA is spying on the American people illegally, unconstitutionally, collecting your metadata. Uh, people in the deep state were spying on their love interests. We, got, we know that through the Snowden leak that Greenwald leaked through The Guardian at the time. At the time, So they're not doing that. Now, I know the CIA is spying on everybody, too. So you give them these emergency powers, and then they just don't give them back. They don't give them back. Now, they busted up the trucker blockade. They did. It's done. It's over. And now it's over, but they say, no, 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 we still need the emergency powers. Why? Why do you need them? I mean, my guess is they want to still have the emergency powers to do the things they said they were going to do. Let's continue the investigation into everybody. They're not just going after people who actually committed crimes who were part of the protest. They're going after everybody who was part of the protest. Freezing bank accounts. Taking very authoritarian controls here that no doubt are going to be used on left-wing protesters as well. Here you see the left-wing parties were in favor of curtailing the civil liberties. And it was the right-wing party parties who were like, you know, not such a good idea. If I was in the government, I would absolutely have voted with the conservatives on this one. Because they're taking the left position, the position that civil libertarians should take, the position that, you know, not only the Ron Paul types are supposed to take, but the Bernie Sanders types too. So when are they going to give up the powers? Now, look, I don't know. Canada genuinely is different in many respects from the U.S. My guess is with the U.S., we still have like a bunch of emergency powers in place. We don't fucking Guantanamo Bay open. So we're like uniquely bad in some ways on this front. So maybe at some point they give up these powers, but the fact of the matter is they should already have given them up. But they're going to keep the powers, my guess is, to go after people who are in the protests and give the government more unilateral authority to crack down on on protests. 
So they're going to go after the, the bank accounts and everything under the sun. We've talked about this in detail before. And you don't have to agree with the nature of the protest in order to take the position I'm taking right now. Because I told you guys, it's a complex picture. The Teamsters Union in Canada were against this, this protest, this blockade. Uh, you had 90% of the truckers are vaccinated. And so they were like, okay, uh, just get vaccinated. So there are plenty who disagreed. This wasn't like a, just simply a working class uprising that represents all the workers. That's not true. But having said that, you still have to defend their rights. And this is, these emergency powers should not be extended by any stretch of the imagination. And so ultimately, uh, the government went authoritarian mode and cracked down. And here we are. And the precedent is now laid. It was already laid in the U.S. Now it's laid even more in Canada that, you know, if there's a general strike or some sort of, you know, union protest that genuinely is for higher wages or whatever, guess what? All these old tricks are going to come out and they're going to come out super fast. All right, next. Phil Mickelson, hmm. Phil Mickelson really stepped in it. So he said in an interview fairly recently, Saudi Arabia is terrible, bro. They killed Jamal Khashoggi. They execute gay people. They're deeply authoritarian. They have a terrible human rights record. But yeah, I'm going to work with them because I like want to improve the PGA Tour. He was referring to you know this Saudi league that was trying to pick off the top players in the world and pay them a ridiculous amount of money. They want to compete with the PGA Tour, probably eventually overthrow the PGA Tour. Greg Norman is like the liaison to the Saudi government and trying to, you know, get the players. Well, Phil saying that led to the rest of the PGA Tour players being asked about it. They all condemned it, and they all said, look, I'm with the PGA Tour. I'm not with this Saudi league. And um, so Phil was getting a lot of heat, rightfully so. He's basically saying, I'm incredibly amoral, and I'm greedy, and when you mix those two together, you get immorality, where I'm overlooking a homicidal authoritarian theocracy because they're going to give me a lot of money. And so I could either either sign the deal with them or use that as leverage to shake down the PGA Tour for more money, even though his net worth is $40 million, even though he makes $50 million a year. He still thinks he's getting taken advantage of. It's not him that's getting taken advantage of. It's the players on the mini tours that are taken advantage of. It's the players in the bottom portion of the PGA Tour that are getting taken advantage of. It's when you miss the cut and make no money. That's being taken advantage of. It's the volunteers at the events who make the PGA Tour events run that are getting taken advantage of because they're volunteers. The PGA Tour has the money to pay them. They don't want to pay them. So those, that's who's getting taken advantage of. Phil thinks he is. And he thought he was like, you know, I'm standing up in solidarity with my fellow top players. Well, nobody asked for that. And PGA Tour is constantly making changes to try to, you know, make their players happier. Okay? So, but he couldn't stand the heat. So he released a so-called apology. I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll react to it. So it's long. He says, Although it doesn't look this way now, given my recent comments, my actions throughout this process, process have always been with the best interest of golf, my peers, sponsors, and fans. This is the problem of off-record comments being shared out of context and without my consent. But the bigger issue is that I use words I sincerely regret that do not reflect my true feelings or intentions. By the way, the uh, journalist has come out and said this wasn't off the record at all. He never said anything about that. It was reckless. I offended people, and I am deeply sorry for my choice of words. I'm beyond disappointed and will make every effort to self-reflect and learn from this. Golf desperately needs change, and real change is always preceded by disruption. I have always known that criticism would come with exploring anything new. I still chose to put myself at the forefront of this to inspire change, taking the hits publicly to work behind the scenes. My experience with Live Golf Investments, this is the Saudi-lined group, 
has been very positive. I apologize for anything I said that was taken out of context. The specific people I have worked with are visionaries and have only been supportive. More importantly, they passionately love golf and share my drive to make the game better. They have a clear plan to create an updated and positive experience for everyone, including players, sponsors, networks, and fans. He continues. He continues. I have incredible partners, and these relationships mean so much more to me than a contract. Many have been my most, inf my most influential mentors, and I consider all to be lifelong friends. The last thing I would ever want to do is com compromise them or their business in any way. And I have given all of them the option to pause or end the relationship as I understand it might be necessary given the current circumstances. I believe, I believe in these people and companies and will always be here for them with or without a contract. I have made a lot of mistakes in my life and many have been shared with the public. My intent was never to hurt anyone and I'm so sorry to the people I have negatively impacted. This has always been about supporting the players and the game I appreciate and the game and I appreciate all people who have given me the benefit of the doubt. Despite my, despite my belief that some changes have already been made within the overall discourse, I know I need to be accountable. For the past 31 years, I've lived a very public life and have strived to live up to my own expectations, be the role model the fans deserve, and be someone that inspires others. I've worked to compete at the highest level, be available to media, represent my sponsors with integrity, engage with volunteers, and sign every autograph for my incredible fans. I have experienced many successful and rewarding moments that I will always cherish but I have often failed myself and others too. The past 10 years have left, have felt the pressure and stress slowly affecting me at, deeper level, at a deeper level. I know I have not been, in, been my best and desperately need time away, away to prioritize the ones I love most and work on being the man I want to be. Sorry for my stumbling and bumbling there. The font was very small on uh, my graphic in front of me here. Um, yeah, you know what I hear as I listen to that? Cut my life into pieces. This is my last resort. Bum, bum. That's what I'm hearing. You didn't have to go all emo teenager on us, bro. Now, by the way, go through that uh, apology again, if you can fucking handle it, because I know it takes 12 years to do it. Go through it again, and what's he saying? First, he's deflecting and saying, this was off the record and out of context. Then, as he's deflecting, he's also like, but if I hurt people, I'm sorry I offended you. I didn't mean the thing that you thought I meant, even though I meant it. And then he goes into, he apologizes to the Saudi Golf League, to the Live Investments people. So that's Greg Norman and whoever else is behind the scenes running the program with the Saudi government. So in other words, he's not saying, hey, dog, the problem here was I'm so greedy, I was willing to work with an authoritarian theocracy dictatorship that murders people. And that's a problem. And now I know that's wrong. And I shouldn't do that. These things matter. He didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. It was like, it's out of context. Um, it should have been shared in the first place, but also I'm sorry if you're offended or whatever. But also I'm sorry to my, my partners and my, the people who sponsor me and to the Live Golf Investment people, the Saudi government. <laughs> I need to go work on myself. It's been so hard. I'm going to paint my nails black and wear eyeshadow and be a emo punk kid from 2005. Okay, Peckerhead, relax, relax. This is like the worst possible statement you could release. It, it honestly is. It is. 
And you know what the, my takeaway is? I think he already signed a contract with the Saudi people, with the Saudi um, golf league, because he's apologizing more to them. And my guess is they're giving him at least $100 million or more. But the problem is now nobody else is willing to join Phil on the new tour. So are you really going to get that money? Are there really going to be events? I don't think there is. Roy McIlroy came out and said, I think the thing's fucking dead in the water. Everybody's out. Dustin Johnson's out. People thought he might join. Bryson DeChambeau's out. People thought he might join. He was offered $130 million or $150 million to join. But now he released a statement saying, I'm always going to play where the best players in the world are, and they're the PGA Tour. So I think he signed uh, a deal with them and just shot himself in the dick. That's what I think. And, you know, people are speculating. This might be true. He's a known gambler. People think, hey, maybe he's got a lot of gambling debt. And so he sort of feels like he needs that money. And, um, well, if he needed that money, I don't think it's going to come through, dog, because you just destroyed the tour with everything you said, which, by the way, is a good thing. I'm happy that the tour is destroyed. There are problems with the PGA Tour, and they need to be, it needs to be reformed. They need to have less income inequality between top of the tour and the bottom of the tour. I think they should expand the tour. There's only like 125, 150 players. They should double the size of it. They should pay people some money if they miss the cut just so they could cover their expenses. You know, there's things you could do. But if anybody's going to change it, it's more likely to be the tour than the fucking Saudi government. So they're just trying to sports wash their image. By the way, you know who came up with that term, sports, wa- sports washing? Phil Mickelson said it. He's like, yeah, they're trying to clean up their record. He was happy enough to, let, to help them do it. He was like, okay, I'll help you do it. Either getting a big payday from you or uh, improving the PGA Tour how he wants to improve it, by the way, which is more money for Phil Mickelson. And this all backfired. So apparently, look, I... I actually think golf media has done a phenomenal job covering this story. They have. Randall Chamblee and a bunch of others. I watch the Golf Channel all the time because I'm 78 years old. And golf media is way better than traditional media, <laughs> like standard CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Nightly News. They're way more, you know, like politically correct, and they go with the narrative of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. Golf media was like, this motherfucker's greedy, and he's apologizing to the Saudi government, and he just said he got caught, and now he's going full emo teenager. Their commentary is not too dissimilar from my commentary. So credit to golf media. Phil Mickelson's a mess. He, he shot this thing in the dick, and uh, at the end of the day, I guess that's the upside. All right, next. So there is, uh, there's a poll that came out on media consumption, and in the post-Trump era, it has collapsed. Let me show you the, uh, the chart here. Percentage of Americans who pay a great deal of attention to the news by political affiliation. So um, independent is down to 29%. Republican is 40%. It's somewhat steady on the Republican side because they love to hate watch Biden stuff. Um, but Democrat, look at that. It was like at 70-ish percent, and it just plummeted to 34%. This is from Gallup, too. So in a survey of approximately 100,000 people from February 5th, 2018 to December 3rd, 2021. So, look, there are some peaks and valleys there that are explainable. you got presidential elections. you got the beginning of COVID. Um, but that's a bigger plunge than, uh, than expected. That is, that's like we were obsessed with watching stuff when it was Trump in there. Now that Trump's gone, snooze fest, we're outski. That's what that is. So I have um, some more stuff on this for you. 
While respondents across the political spectrum all reported a decline in interest in national news over the past year, Democrats' interest has declined the most, which is 34%, saying they paid a great deal of attention to national news in 2021, compared to 69% in November 2020. The decline among Democrats ages 18 to 34 is staggering. Roughly a quarter, 24%, said they paid a great deal of attention to national news in 2021, compared to 70% in November 2020. Good googly moogly. 18 to 34 was 70%. Now it's 24%. By the way, that's me getting shot in the dick because that's, that's mostly, that's my demographic. I mean, there's obvious others are there too, but that's like the, the chunk of it. The biggest chunk of it is 18 to 34. Um, those aged 35 to 54 also tuned out significantly. Independents that lean Democrat are also paying less attention to national news than independents that lean Republican, the survey found. National news again peaked in March 2020 at the onset of the pandemic, and again in November 2020 during the presidential election. So, look, I'm, I'm always railing against uh, the, the biases and the poor incentives of corporate media. I've even now started going after independent media. I think there are other issues that independent, independent media has to deal with. Probably one of the biggest ones is just preaching to the, to the choir, you know, it's, uh, it's audience capture. It's, I'm literally just going to come out here and feed you the things that I know you want to hear because you want to hear it, and that's how I get more popular. Um, I think that's actually a big problem. I don't think very many creators have the balls to say, I think this, and I know most of you will disagree with it, but I'm still going to say it because it's what I think, and let the chips fall where they may. That hurts me, it hurts me. If it doesn't, it doesn't, but I'm just going to be honest with everybody. So independent media, new media has a different issue. It also has the issue of fringe elements that are genuinely fringe, that are fucking psychotic, who give the rest of independent media a bad look. You know, somebody like Alex Jones is a good example, although he's been mostly deplatformed now, which I oppose, by the way. But, you know, people could look at that as like, that's representative of independent media and new media, and that's not good. Um, so there are other issues with independent media and new media. But look, you got to keep it real. There, is all, there are also issues with um, what the audience is interested in. Now, I think that, you know, my audience uh, is generally better on this than a lot of other audiences. But it is true that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, man. The sensationalism is the thing that sells. The conflict is the thing that sells. And so, you know, when I just do dry, straightforward segments, like, you know, go look at the segment we did the other day, plus 41% increase in child poverty, that video had way fewer views than, you know, a video on a conflict or something. Now, Russia versus Ukraine is interesting enough and and important enough where that should have gotten a shitload of views. But like, you know, it could be personality-driven garbage that gets more than purely substantive. So I also think there's this problem more generally, not just in corporate media, but also in new media, of the reality starification of, of news. And um, I don't like that. Like, I want, I hope for better than that. I don't, I, I don't like when new media is viewed totally unseriously. Like, we have fun. We joke around. I'm a political commentator. I'm not a journalist. I never said I was a journalist. Um, but also, when it's time to be serious, I like to think that we're somewhat serious. And so the reality starification, I think, is a problem. I don't like the, I don't like the endless internal bickering and back and forth and where you feel like you're watching more of the real world than watching serious political commentary. And uh, unfortunately, that is a problem. And I think that you get these big spikes with the big events, the beginning of COVID, the presidential elections. You got a whole lot of people watching when it was the Trump years because Trump was fucking psycho and always gave us something to laugh at and was always interesting. But look, the problems in the world are still there. And even though Biden's a zombie and he's half dead, it's like, 
you should still care, and you should still be looking at least equally as much at the serious issues as the personality-driven drama stuff. So I think there's a lot of blame to go around everywhere. But really, look, at the end of the day, even though I do think there's stuff to say about the audience and now there's no interest, even though there should be interest, it is also the burden of the creator to take something that may not be as inherently interesting and make it interesting. So at the end of the day, you could say the buck always stops with me, the buck always stops with whoever the creator is, to take something that might be relatively dry at face value, but make it something that everybody wants to watch, you know? And so sometimes it's harder to do that with income and wealth inequality videos. It's like everybody's like, yeah, I know how bad it is. You don't need to tell me more specifics on how bad it is. Or climate change, yeah, I know how bad it is. You don't need to tell me more specifics on how bad it is. But, you know, the, the trick is how do we find a way to make that, more interesting where you're just as likely if not more likely to click that video versus some personality driven bullshit drama so anyway that's my breakdown and um man that's what a giant decline i hope everybody gets more interested in news and politics and keeps that interest because it is it's everything it is everything to your life and my life and everybody's life uh politics literally encapsulates everything how do we structure society what are the laws what are the rules how do we act what's acceptable what's not acceptable all that stuff is politics and it's Crucially important. Okay. Final story. The MyPillow dude, Mike Lindell, has been uh, having multiple meltdowns seemingly on a weekly basis. And so he just launched some TV network. I literally didn't even hear of it until I saw this clip. And... um, He's deciding to go full civil war against other conservatives. Take a look. That's why Fox went silent on us. We badmouth Fox every night here on this show. Shame on Fox. They've done more damage to our country than all the bad media combined because we expected them to speak out. Just at least talk about the, you know, at least be a journalist. It's like being a weather channel doctor and you can't report tornadoes or hurricanes. You can report everything else. But you can't report the worst thing, the election, or you can't talk about anything negative about the vaccines or therapeutics that work. You cannot do that on Fox. Fox is in on it. They're they're criminals to our country, period. Yes, I hope the Murdochs are watching. Damn. So he's saying Fox is worse than CNN and MSNBC and the other networks. They're criminals because he feels burned by them the most. Now, what are his main gripes? He says, look, um, you're, you're too pro-vaccine, and you're not talking about the rigged election. Stop the steal. Have you considered this? You're wrong. You're wrong. And Fox is trying to maintain whatever tiny little shreds of credibility they have left. Have you considered that? Have you considered uh, you're a joke and a mess and... Um, The debate on the vaccine, even though a lot of people seem to think otherwise, it's settled. Like, it is absolutely, in terms of spreading COVID, yeah, it doesn't protect against spreading it anymore. And it's gotten weaker on that front with each new variant. But it still has over 90% protection from severe illness, hospitalization, and death, which means if you want to protect yourself from the worst symptoms of it, you got to get the vaccine. Now, Fox, they probably dabbled in more anti-vax stuff than other networks, but largely they're like, okay, let's not be total psychopaths here. They are correct to not go full anti-vax nonsense. 
And in the case of your uh, rigged election theories, that's even more concrete. Bro, www.getoverit.net. Like, what are you doing? It's, Biden's been in office for a long time now. What do you think, you're really going to get him out of office? And by the way, the answer is yes. He keeps pushing back the date and coming up with new dates. Like, oh, he's going to be out in October. Oh, he's going to be out. He just keeps pushing it back, back, back. Oh, we got the evidence now, bro. Look out, dog. He's going down. I promise you. And then he doesn't, because of course he's not going to. There is no legal process at this late date to even remove the president, other than impeachment or what is it? Uh, you know, the, the mental health amendment or whatever, where it's like, oh, he's literally cancer. There's no other way. But he's acting like there is a, a way. You have the Arizona audit, where Biden won by more than we even thought he won by on Election Day. You have the 60 court cases where, you know, Trump lost, like, almost every single one, and the only one he did win was, like, some procedural nonsense that didn't change the outcome at all. What do you want? What do you want? But he's a psycho. He's a psycho. But look, cheered on. This is, this is internal Civil War stuff. It's, you know, I'm, I'm so far right that I, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so far right, COVID, I'm so far right that I think that, uh, that was a joke, by the way, I don't have COVID. Eh, maybe I do, who knows? Uh, so far right that he says, like, Fox News is left. Come on, son. Come on, dog. I don't know. How, how do you let yourself get this far gone? His story is interesting. He used to be a crackhead, quite literally. I'm not making a joke here. And then um, he got off of it. But now, like, he changed his addiction to crack to, like, addiction to insane conspiracy theories and far-right politics. He just traded one addiction for another. I know this might be controversial to say, but I think the crack addiction was better, bro. I really do. Sorry. I mean, this is, it's embarrassing at this point. He's like, you know, he's like a beautiful mind. He's got equations written on fucking chalkboards where he's saying, see, and that's how we know that Venezuela and Maduro helped overthrow and rig the voting machines and made it so that Joe Biden won because Joe Biden's actually really good friends with Maduro, even though they're currently trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government. But that's what happened with the... And this guy's been sued, too, by the companies that run the voting machines. Like, you're fucking lying, and we can prove it. And, you know, I don't know if he's been clonked yet in terms of having to pay a fine or whatever, but the guy's a mess, man. The guy's a mess. Send help. And Lindell TV, I would love to know what their ratings are because there's probably only 17 people watching it, and, like, 13 of the 17 are people like me watching it just to make fun of it. All right, guys. We are done. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of the day. Got a great Crystal Kylan friends coming up this week. Check that out. Um, yeah, I'm out, y'all. Peace.